This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. When Susan invited me, she asked me to talk about human rights in Mexico, which is easy and difficult. Easy because there are so many violations of human rights that you could easily choose any one of them and spend one or two hours discussing the specific details. What I decided was to take the right to free and fair elections as the guiding argument, and then at the end to link that uh, with security and in the process to discuss the questions of billionaires. So it seems that the issues are separate, but as a matter of fact, I argue that they are very interconnected. Mexico ended uh, almost a century of authoritarian uh, rule by a single party. 2000, the year 2000, and we have the first uh, ever president that came from a different party, Vicente Fox. So I will start, I'm not going, I don't have the time to go into the details about the past, but I will go into the question of uh, what is the uh, inheritance of Vicente Fox? Is it true that uh, he was an irrelevant, inefficient president? Or did he do uh, something to change Mexico? The question is very broad, but what I argue, and I'm going to present to you bits of information of a new book that I am finishing, which is about the, the question of democracy and human rights and related to free and fair elections, to democracy. What I argue is that uh, he didn't plan it, but he was able to make a silent revolution in Mexico in the sense that uh, he was instrumental by his uh, inaction in redistribu redistributing power in ways that nobody anticipated. So I'm going to start to show some of the slides that uh, will give you an idea of this redistribution of power. So let's start with the myth of the imperial presidency. No, I think it's uh, have to go to the number one. No, I don't know. There is a belief that Mexico is a presidentialist country. It was. But within the six years of Fox, there was a massive distribution within the government. Uh, I'm sorry. 
there was a massive redistribution of power within the government. I put in this table the increases and reductions in the in the budget. As you, as you know, budgets uh, are reclaiming the payroll of power within the bureaucracy. So the judicial and the legislative increased their power during those six years, especially the judiciary that increased its uh, budget 146%. Remarkable. Which is what is going on in Mexico. I mean, power is taking a, was taken away from the president and given to uh, the judicial system and to Congress. Then the next uh, four offices, under the old regime, the president controlled the country through mainly through three ministries, defense, security, the treasury, economics, gobernación, which has, was the interior, and the presidency, which had the power that control everything. Defense increased its uh, budget in a normal way, 25%, treasury only 21%, the presidency only 11%, which is very low. But it gives an idea of how modest the increase in power, in the, I mean, it gives an idea of the decreasing power if you compare this uh, figure with the other ones. And then interior or gobernación decrease its budget by almost 50%. So this is just a simple indicator of what happened inside the government. Slide number two. A revolution nevertheless happened in the transfer of money to the states. There was a massive uh, transfer of funds, federal funds. 30% of the federal budget is transferred every year. And that means that uh, billions of dollars are transferred every year. And that has created a new phenomenon, which is uh, very normal in Brazil, perhaps, but not in Mexico. The governors, the power of the governors. And Mexico, in Mexico now, governors have become a new factor of power. They are not dependent on the president anymore. They have the, their own agendas, especially because uh, the money that is spent at the local level in the states is not uh, oversight as a federal budget is. I estimated that uh, there are different studies about half uh, of the federal budget, of the bad, of half of the money sent by the federal government to the states have not uh, are not uh, controlled, are not accountable. So, in the case of the state of Mexico, just to give you an idea, about three billion dollars were not uh, did not uh, were not controlled by no one, and that explains why governors have become so powerful. One of the indicators. Please. Then let's take income distribution. Here you have, instead of uh, leaving the 10%, I put them in 20% because it's easier to present. And what is more remarkable is how little change income distribution of the poorest sectors of the population in the six years of the Fox administration. There was not really any increase in the income, in the monetary income of poor people. 
five pesos a year was the increase in the poorest 20% of the population. 20 pesos a year of the next uh, 20%. So it is irrelevant. We have still, after six, after seven years of a new party in power, we still have the same problem of an extremely unequal income distribution, and that is going to have an impact on many levels, migration to the US, increasing the power of the drug cartels, and so on and so forth. Next one. The next figure gives you an idea of the chronic capitalism in Mexico. In Mexico, the state was the strongest actor in the past. When privatization came uh, with the Carlos Salinas regime, then the number and the wealth, the number of billionaires and the wealth of billionaires started to increase dramatically. These figures are taken from Forbes magazine, which is the only source of information about billionaires, about Mexican billionaires. And Forbes started to uh, its list uh, on 1987. In 1988, there was only one family in Mexico with a fortune of $2 billion. Tom Novo Leon, Garza Sada. When the Carlos Salinas regime ended, there were 24 individuals or families with a fortune of $44 billion. When uh, Vicente Fox administration ended and the Felipe Calderón began, there were only 10 billionaires with a fortune of $84 billion. Among them, the richest man in the world, Carlos Slim, who himself owns $56 billion. All those fortunes, or most of those fortunes, were done under the protection of the federal government because they received the concessions of the former private, mon uh, the former public monopolies like the telephone company was transferred to private hands. And uh, they keep the monopoly working. So I can give you an example. I have a contract here in the US that calls me uh, for a, a, a cell phone that cost me about $30 a month. For the same uh, kind of services, about 1,000 minutes, I have to pay in Mexico $210. All that is a surplus that I have to pay to the private monopoly of Mr. Carlos Slim that is protected by the government because consumers are not protected in Mexico. The institutions that, the governmental institutions that are well, exist to protect the uh, consumers do a very lousy job. So we, we still have, after this first uh, sexenium with a different uh, party in power, the inequality in income. Very few rich people, a huge mass of poor people, and that will have an impact in an impact in the, in the phenomenon I'm going to explain. The next, please. The power of organized crime. At the beginning of Felipe Calderón, it controlled 40% of the territory. 
we talk to 24 million Mexicans. I'm going to come back to that later, so I'll stop here. I will give you more information. I'm going to expand this uh, slide. Please continue. The wealth of political parties. Part of the problem in, the, in Mexico, the political problem, is the corruption of political parties. All political parties have become prisoners of a system that transfers to them fortunes every year. And I put here an example. Political parties receive in the year 2000 about $400 million from, federal, from public funds, federal and state funds. And in, on 2006, they received $570 million. There is an, it is an increase, and what is more important, I, I, I didn't estimate the percentages, is that the state transfers of money are growing uh, in, at a higher speed, at a higher rate than federal money, because governors have more money to give to the political parties. This has created a triple corrupting effect in political parties. It has created bureaucracies, that uh, receive relatively good salaries, and I can give you now some examples. And they have the key to access to public office, which is extremely well-paid in Mexico. Not as in Brazil, perhaps, but it's very, very well-paid. And I can give you an example in, in, in figures. A university professor earns about $2,000 a month. If he is uh, he or she is a party leader, he earns about four thousand dollars. If he is part of the local government, not federal government, mid-sized city like Cuernavaca, he earns ten thousand dollars a month. Therefore, we have created a bureaucracy in the parties that has a vested interest in the preservation of this corrupt system and uh, is not representing the interest of the people. So there is a growing alienation of the common citizen vis-a-vis -vis political parties. Let's move to political rights. The foundation of a democratic society is uh, the respect for the vote, the right to free and fair, fair elections. It's a founding right. If you have that right, if you respect that right, then a number of other rights can be respected. Mexico has a very long tradition of electoral votes. I included here four, the four presidential elections that are, uh, it is accepted, were fraudulent, 1929, 1940, 1952, 1988. I don't have the time to go into detail comparison, but I want to go to the question that is dividing, has divided Mexico, and is dividing Mexico still. Was there an electoral fraud in 2006? 50% of the population will say no, 
it was a clean election. 40% of the population will answer yes. There were, there were irregularities, even perhaps an electoral fraud. Nobody really knows for sure what happened in that election. Because, believe it or not, one of the underdeveloped fields of inquiry, academic inquiry in Mexico, are electoral frauds. We should have PhDs. I mean, full, I mean, full professorships, a chair in every university. I'm not joking. I mean, electoral fraud has been so central to our political system, to our culture. It has permeated so much. It has injected so much our culture with the with corruption, because Mexican society is very tolerant with corruption. Union polls are very clear about that. We are not perhaps a corrupt society. That's an open debate. I don't think we are corrupt, but we tolerate corruption. Because we have learned throughout a century of electoral thoughts that you can do nothing without electoral fraud. So, the tragedy of 2006 has to do not with the fact of who won the election, because, and I don't want to enter into that debate with Felipe Calderón or López Obrador. The tragedy was that the opposition party that made free and fair elections, its banner throughout the since 1939, when the National Action Party was created, when it conquered power, presidential power, tolerate the irregularities that I am going to present to you now. I could give you the variables that, I mean, because I have made, I have studied this electoral fraud, and I have made a number of variables that I'm going to measure, I'm measuring, I have measured what? 2006 with these other elections to see if they fit or not fit. I won't have the time to go into detail analysis because it takes me so long. So I will go in a very fast way through the election to show you one or two points. Let me just tell you two differences. Of 2006, three, three differences from the other elections. One, nobody was killed, which is something. I mean, from 1929, hundreds were killed. 1988, dozens were killed. In 2006, nobody was killed. Second, we have access to information, as never before. I have a team of six uh, assistants working in the process of information about that election, and it's amazing all the amounts of tons of uh, facts, hard facts about that election that can be found. And the third uh, innovation in 2006 is negative campaign, of which the U.S. is master in Let's move to a quick overview of that election. These are the results of our, that election. 
0.5% of the vote was the victims. Only 233,000 votes. So any irregularity can account for that small difference. That's one part. Second, please. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the leftist mayor of Mexico City, the leader, the populist leader, according to some, the, the hope for the poor, according to others, had been leading opinion polls for two years, 10 points. He was 10 points ahead of everybody since 2004. January 2006, he was ahead 10 points of Felipe Calderón, then uh, Madrazo, 26 points, and the others are irrelevant to numerical terms. So January of 2006, the 10 points lead. Next one. Now I'm going to give you, no, go back and let's start with the sports, um, with media. Let me go. No, it's, uh, yes, the sports. The one of Ladrillos, the number one. Yes. This is the first spot transmitted on March, um, on February 2006, Felipe Calderón decided, I'm going to lose. And the only way, I mean, we have his, the interview he gave to Salvador Camarena, so we know that he decided, I have to uh, get advantage of, uh, the expertise of Spaniards and Americans, and he hired Dick Morris and Antonio Solá, two experts on negative campaigning. And on March 12th, he, uh, the National Action Party, um, transmitted nationally this spot. A danger to Mexico. I'll go back later to negative campaign. To the question of timings and all that. Uh, the, the number two. This was aired six days later, March 16th. Four days later. Spot number three. Mentiroso. 
That was good. <laughs> I have to compliment. And number four. This was. We were innocent, naive, on negative campaigning. Never before in Mexican history this kind of sports have been used on a presidential campaign. That does not mean that the authoritarian regime did not use rumors and defamation to discredit opposition leaders. But it was done in a different way, not with the spots. I know that for Americans, and I have discussed this uh, in, uh, with them, say, well, that's normal. That's freedom of speech. And perhaps that's the case. Also, there are other democracies in Europe that don't, does not allow this kind of uh, campaigning. The question is that the problem in Mexico is that this is, these four spots were illegal, were forbidden by law. They could not be aired. And yet, the two first spots that started to uh, air on March 12th and 16th, March 12th and 18th, I'm sorry, six days later, stay on the air for uh, two months and uh, 11 days. Because the electoral authority, the IFE, tolerated them. They refused to take them out of national television, arguing that it was freedom of speech. They took the American thesis. Well, because that's part of your tradition. I mean, this is not part of the Mexican tradition, so it's, I don't want to discuss if it's right or wrong. It, has, it had to go the case to the electoral tribunal that ruled um, in May on a, that uh, it was illegal and that it was the first two. In the case of the third one, that was uh, a spot from the left from the PRD against Calderon, and it was only trans allowed to be transmitted 18 days. The last one was a spot transmitted by a, a private organization, a businessman organization, the most important business organization, which is also illegal. No private company can uh, put this kind of money in, in the political campaign. So for the left, that was one of the reasons why the electoral authorities were uh, partial, were in favor of Calderón. There were many other examples. So 
And opinion polls show that no Mexican like uh, these spots, but they were very effective. They work. Let's see the next PowerPoint slide. were the consequences of the spots. Look at the day in March, in April, the fall of Andres Manuel López Obrador, 35%. Felipe Calderón, 38%. There were many other factors. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. I am not saying that the spots were the only cause, but it was a very important cause for the drop in the in the preferences for uh, the president this was this is only one of the many irregularities that occurred during 2006 i could give you a lot more but uh, that explains why about 40% of the population believe that it was an election characterized by irregularities. What were the consequences of 2006? Insecurity increase. Guerrillas start to regroup and react. In, 19, in 2007, there were a number of uh, terrorist acts acts against uh, oil pipelines, gas pipelines, with major consequences. There was also a breakdown within, within Mexico. We are divided. We are still divided. No matter what they tell you, opinion poll after opinion poll show that we are divided on fundamental issues and on the question of what kind of democracy we want. There are all sorts of opinions, but uh, this is a New Mexico, perhaps it is better. I don't know. Um, before going to security, which is related in a way, let's uh, look at the final PowerPoint. Go down, down, all the, all the way to the end. There should be, eh, yes. This is an opinion poll that has not been released. So you are privileged to see these figures. It was, I mean, a friend of mine, uh, Roy Campos from Mitowski, allowed me to use, to use these figures for an opinion piece and for this presentation. He asked the perception of fraud in December 2007, just a few weeks ago. He asked, if the elections were held today, how clean would they be? 29% answered, very clean. 69% answered, not clean or fraudulent. Even panistas, 50% of panistas believe that the elections would be fraudulent. That's the impact perception of uh, an illegitimate election. So, let's, uh, I'll try to be very 
fast now, but what all this has to do with security? Well, as part of the redistribution of power within the Fox administration, he allowed drug cartels to become extremely powerful. So, in December of 2006, of, of 2006, when Felipe Calderón became president, he announced that he would launch, launch an, a war against uh, crime, organized crime. So, I will show you his, the speech he gave on February 10, 2007 in the Navy. And then I will start to give you some figures so you can have a nice, uh, nice dreams. Calderon. He only missed Texas and Illinois <laughs> from the list, it seems. <laughs> he said at the beginning of his speech, we will rescue Mexico. Who kidnapped Mexico? I mean, the language can be very powerful. He was very clear. He named eight states. So what I did, that was not for the, this book, it was part of another exercise, another book that has already been published on security. What I did, I was to, I, I contrasted the rhetoric with the figures, and, or I used the rhetoric to have an idea of the dimension of the threat. So now, can we go back to the PowerPoint, I'm sorry, um, to this map, this, exactly. This is the power of the organ of organized crime in Mexico, according to the president. Not according to any uh, troublemaker, scholar, or whatever, columnist. But according to the president, these are the parts of the country that have to be rescued, including Durango, the home town of uh, Jesus Garcia. It's remarkable, isn't it? And why is so powerful the drug, uh, the organized crime? This has to be, it's a question of money. These are all estimates given by official authorities, different official authorities. Sales in Mexico, $10 billion. 250,000 individuals work or drug cartels selling drugs in the streets. The biggest employer, private employer, and most successful, they are not in social security, but they are given fringe benefits. 
10 billion dollars for the exports to the US equal. We have the same problem at home now, and the money we are earning for exporting to the US, or they are earning for exporting to the US. And then the annual profits of the for the Americans or whoever who traffic guns to Mexico, nine billion dollars. So it's a, an estimated $29 billion a year that is being moved by these groups. Let's take uh, illegal weapons in more detail. According to a small arms survey, in 2004 there were between 3.5 and 16.5 million illegal weapons in Mexico. So it means that, uh, I don't know what is the percentage in the US, I think we are still lower than that, but there is a lot of illegal weapons floating around Mexico. Second, during the Vicente Fox term, according to official figures, 4.3 million weapons were exported to Mexico in the 12,000 sale and distribution points in the US, US side of the world. Then I asked the different offices how many weapons had been captured. Only 29,000 weapons have been seized by the federal authorities. The Army, Navy, the Attorney General Office, all federal police, all federal, the, the whole security apparatus only was able to seize 29,000 uh, weapons. Army deserters. The army is training the hitmen of the drug cartels. Almost a quarter of a million deserters in 12 years. 237,000. These are official figures from the army. Nobody knows how many of them went to work for the drug cartels. What we know is that uh, a soldier earned during the Fox years $300 a month and a hitman earned $3,000 a month. Ten times more money. So, you have a country of poor people with no income. Either you sell drugs. It's the only job being created, I mean, with relative good income. Because job, jobs have been created in Mexico, but salaries are lousy. It is offensive. One of the worst violations in Mexico have to do with labor rights. And uh, some generals have accepted that they know that the bars surrounding the army barracks receive the visit of the scouts of the drug cartels that are looking for the best and the bravest, not the brightest, but the bravest, within the army to hire them, to fight for them. Uh, the next one, please. 
There are four executions. This uh, 2007 is only until July. I didn't have the time to correct. But look how it is increasing the executions due to drug-related activities from 1,200 uh, 1, to about 2,300 in 2007, and this year is hitting records. I mean, every day you look at the papers, 6, 10, 12, 20 are killed in different parts of the country. For a single reason, for a very simple reason, they are fighting for the markets, not only for the routes to export to the US. Now, the bitter fights are for the control of the markets because we have become a country of consumers. And the tragedy is that the government has not produced the information to have a clear view of what uh, is the size of the threat, what are the dimensions of the security threat to Mexico. What we know is that the drug cartels are infiltrating politics, local politics. In those eight states, they have been able to put their people as chief of police and chief of transit of the traffic, because those are the two positions that they carry. These are the ones that are important for, for business. I think this is the last one. Let, let's see if it's the last one. Yes. I could continue on and on with implications this has for human rights. Just let me finish by giving you a clear connection. It is not the only one. President Calderon did not have other options. He had to send the army. Because these figures can give you an idea of how powerful drug cartels have become. And because he, he wanted to gain some legitimacy after the election, there were two the reasons, two of the reasons, those were two of the reasons. But the army was not trained to respect human rights in Mexico. Not in the US, not in democracies, as we know, by all the evidence in Iraq and everywhere. And soldiers are trained to kill, period. And they are educated to do that. They are not educated to respect the life of people, but that's not part of the code of honor or the code of conduct. So we, are now, we have now a problem because soldiers are committing abuses and are uh, crossing the boundaries, the legal boundaries, in a very dangerous road. For example, they are now in Juana, in, which is a hot spot. They are uh, aiding or uh, distributing some leaflets asking people to denounce anonymously to the army. But the problem is that according to our law, the only institution allowed to take uh, accusations are the Ministerio Público. I don't know how you translate Ministerio Público. I mean, it's part of the legal scheme. So the army is, is trespassing, is crossing the boundaries, the legal boundaries. And, uh, and there have been some cases of assassinations of civilians that does not stop at uh, roadblocks that are unconstitutional, and so on and so forth. So, 
we are at this moment a country with uh, doubts about the legitimacy of elections that does not trust elections and the figures are clear that feels not secure because the government is not giving protection that is that is bitter because we are poor society because uh, the road to the U.S. is being closed and the road to the U.S. agricultural exports are, is being open. So in 2008, we will have the double impact of a closing door and an open wall that will allow uh, basic uh, agricultural uh, exports to Mexico. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that turmoil, we have human rights that uh, are being the victims, the logical victims of this kind of situation, in which still, I don't want to sound very pessimistic, because I think there are some spaces to work uh, and there are some reasons, some grounds to be relatively optimistic about the future. But uh, it is not going to be an easy task. And I believe that on 2000, we have crossed the threshold. Because at last, we had a credible free and fair election, presidential election that was free and fair in 2000. And, uh, but uh, the blow that was given by the irregularities committed by all the actors, but especially by the conservative right, because that's the evidence I have, that the conservative right was the one who committed the most uh, important uh, violation, that has created a difficult situation that is, uh, I think we will muddle through, but, uh, but uh, it will take still years to, for things to settle down and to advance somehow to a more democratic uh, society in which uh, human rights are respected. And for that, the challenge uh, and the task lies in the hands of the people, citizens, because we cannot expect much from political parties, the government, drug cartels, billionaires. They are not there to help the people. They are there to extract wealth from the people and from the country, of course the natural resources to the country. Um, I think I sounded a bit pessimistic. I was trying to get a <laughs> way out, but uh, <laughs> the way how I build the, the speech, I think, I mean, the, no, it's not a speech, uh, the conference uh, does not allow me to end. I'm sorry, I cannot be optimistic. Thank you. <laughs>